Hello, and welcome to ShakesPod, Silicon Valley Shakespeare's podcast. I'm your host, Tanya Duncan, SVS production manager, actor, director, glitter unicorn, whatever they want to call me this week. This month, Silicon Valley Shakespeare explores the theme of love is love, starting with the spotlight on the LGBTQ youth space in San Jose, a wonderful local organization making an impact right in our very own community. Um, I have two guests with me today. Uh, Erica and Alex. Uh, Erica, if you'd like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you. Sure. Thank you for having us first and foremost. My name is Erica Cisneros. I use any and all pronouns, uh, and I'm both uh, one of the outreach coordinators at the LGBTQ youth space, as well as the intake coordinator for the youth space. Um, so the youth space program is a local nonprofit that serves Santa Clara County-based youth ages 13 to 25. Um, we do oftentimes work with a youth who are slightly below our age range, who are um, kind of set to turn 13 or really are interested in um, attending a specific one of our groups with, um, and they have like permission from a parent or a legal guardian. So don't let that be a deterrent if you're a little younger and you want to engage with our program, definitely um, you are welcome to reach out to us and then we can chat and we can see how we can help you out. More information about our program can be accessed at www.youthspace.org. We do have a drop-in center in San Jose. Unfortunately, it, it has been closed nearing a year now with the shelter in place. So currently all of our programming and all of our groups are online, which a little bit of a silver lining um, for some folks who have moved away um, or are out of state, like they can still access our programming. So that's, that's something good. And um, hopefully something that we were talking about keeping that in some capacity in the future when we're able to reenter the world. Primarily, our program is a behavioral health and mental health program. And so we do offer free confidential counseling services for eligible youth. Eligibility depends on who um, the insurance is of the young person. So we work with Full Scope Santa Clara County-based Medi-Cal. However, for youth who are covered with private insurance, uh, we're still more than happy to assist them in locating a local LGBTQ aware therapist um, who possibly works lighting scale um, or free of charge or something to connect them. And then the other facet of the program is kind of the youth empowerment, youth leadership, um, youth support groups that we offer. So there's a plethora of things that we've done. And then there's an, another plethora of things that we want to do. Um, but that's a little bit about the program. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, and Alex, how about you? What would you like our listeners to know about yourself? I'm a participant at the LGBTQ youth space. I also help run some stuff, um, mainly the, the Minecraft nights. The youth space has really been an important part of my story. I've been like attending, I think, ever since I was 13 and I'm 18 now. So quite a long while, I guess, to any younger listeners who are in the community, I just want to really emphasize how powerful and important it is to have a place where you can find community, especially with older queer folks. It was really something that like the importance of that was like not something that I really realized until I had it. But especially for a lot of us, we might be alienated um, from our peers. We might have difficulties in our home life, but being able to find community with people that accept you outside of that is like really important and really powerful. I encourage you all to 
try and reach out and find that because there will always be people that are willing to stand up for you, willing to advocate for you and wanting to empower you. I know from when I was a young person, especially when I was in the public schooling system, I felt really alone and being able to to have a space where I could go and especially the importance of like queer adults that were able to like function in emotionally healthy ways was like so, so important for me. I really have like found my chosen family. It really is like very powerful. It's very relatable to theater because we, a lot of my theater friends and I were like, we're our chosen family. We are the ones, we picked them and we are the ones that support each other through thick and thin. Can you, Erica, give me a little bit of the history of the youth space, how you guys were founded? Yeah, so um, this might be slightly skewed because um, it's not written anywhere, but I've been told this story a few times. So to the best of my ability to remember this, the youth space program was born out of a youth program that is existed with the DeFrank Center in San Jose, which is um, San Jose's LGBTQ community space for all ages. In the 90s, there was a youth group there and they didn't have like a youth space type setup where it was, you know, open kind of all day after school type thing. Um, it was like once or twice a week for an hour or two. They had a pretty powerful group of young folks who attended and they they had dances and they 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 you know planned their own events and so at some point in 2005 six they were like to frank received a grant for um a sum of money um and then when the recession hit uh that grant disappeared and so in order to save some of the programming and save some of the the long-standing were there for youth. One of the then employees of the Frank Center, Cassie Bloom, who then became the program director for LGBTQ youth space, struck up a deal with Family and Children's Services so that Family and Children's Services, which was another mental health nonprofit, could come into create programming for queer and trans youth by offering on-site counseling services um, with therapists. And so um, my understanding is that the, the program was able to kind of take a different sort of life form at that point and become a program in and of itself, as opposed to kind of like a support group. And so there was increased funding and um, they had, they were able to rent now their own space from DeFrank. So they had um, like an actual space that was just for youth. Uh, there was also a small community kitchen. They had um, a small free shelves area for donated goods where you could take whatever they needed. And they also had the increased ability to provide more hours for youth to drop in and hang out and meet other folks. So that's kind of how the program began um, as the youth space, but it definitely was kind of conceived after a longstanding youth group had existed. So Alex, I know you said you all had Minecraft nights. How has the pandemic, I mean, the pandemic's changed so much for so many, unfortunately. Um, how have you all had to kind of adjust your programming? I mean, sure, it's all a lot online, but, you know, we've had to do like trivia nights and like stuff that we never did before. And I'm sure you all have had to do the same. How have you guys sort of retooled things so that you could survive in a virtual world these days? I think the key like phrases virtual world because at least from my experience, I am not a person who loves Zoom. 
my kind of thought was like, if, if it's hard for me to sit in a Zoom meeting, even if it's people that I love, it just feels so, I don't know, sterile and awkward. This is actually uh, the Minecraft night started with an idea from my partner because they're a super huge gamer. I wanted to build like a virtual space for folks that wasn't like kind of the same environment as Zoom. And the nice thing about Minecraft is you can build stuff. And so the participants were able to kind of build their own environment where they could interact with each other through their Minecraft avatars. I think it was a really good way to bring people back in because I know like for a lot of folk, there is a that barrier now that we can't be in person. I mean, I can only speak from my own experience, but I would guess that it's been really isolating for a lot of people as well. Yeah, like I said, a lot of places have had to kind of retool. And I know, uh, not at theater, but for my day job, I hosted an Animal Crossing night where we all like hopped on our islands and talked to each other because you're absolutely right. Zoom is depressing sometimes. Um, We've done a few comedies live and it's so hard when you're an actor and you're trying to be funny and no one is laughing because everyone's muted and you're just like, am I funny? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe I'm funny. (laughs) So yeah, that's such a great out of the box idea of not having to do it via Zoom. Um, I know a lot of people have switched to like Twitch or something not cool or hip enough to switch over to Twitch. Um, but when you're when you are in person in those good old golden days of in person, what is some of either one of you? What is some of your favorite programming that you might offer? I'll let Alex take that one. Transformers, which is the uh, support group for trans people, thirteen to twenty five, I believe, um, was one of the first groups that I ever attended. If you can imagine thirteen year old me who had never taken public transit before, except for like going on a BART to field trip. So I like, t- I take the bus, I'm in San Jose. I like walk in, I have no idea what's happening because I, I don't even have a, like, I have a flip phone. I have these like directions that have been printed out from Google Maps and I like find my way uh, to the youth space. And it just so happened that I, I, I think like the few first times that I arrived were on Mondays and I, but I was able to participate in that group. That that group is still like near and dear to my heart just because it was it was one of the first experiences I had, especially like I hadn't been in queer spaces, so to say, but I can't remember who, but somebody was talking about and calling it the penguin effect. I'm not sure why, but all my friends that stayed my friends throughout my transition and coming out process have like almost all of them have also come out as LGBTQ plus in some way. I, I had never before seen like a trans specific space. So that was really cool, especially because I was questioning my gender at that time. And I hear a lot from like older folks, trans folks that they didn't have like the language or the knowledge to like express their identities. And that was only partially true for me because I had like heard about what it meant to be transgender, but I still had this very limited concept of what the word meant. And because now um, the terms that I use to describe myself are transmasculine and non-binary. I had to explain, I would say it's like dude-ish mostly. As a young person, I 
especially because like my only exposure to trans people had been through, I would like watch YouTube videos of people like way, way down in their transitions. But uh, I, I had this very like binary like view and I was like, if I'm not the most macho manliest man ever, then I don't know if I'm really trans. Meeting actual trans people in the flesh and especially like meeting people whose experiences did not fit within the gender binary was like super helpful for me. And so I think even as we get to this place in society, hopefully for the most part, where young people are now expanding their knowledge, they're learning about these terms and identities, hopefully. It's still, there's something so, so much more powerful about actually meeting a real life person instead of watching through YouTube. That was like a long answer and I'm not even done yet. But uh, the other one that I really like, actually uh, we didn't have until after the pandemic started, I believe it's um, Color of Truth. It's a group specific to queer and trans youth of color. It came at just the time that I had like, been in community college for about a year and I was starting to like get really into ethnic studies and getting really I guess radicalized in my identity and that was like a really and and still is like a really powerful space for me especially like one of the things I've always like appreciated about the youth space I don't know if y'all try to do this consciously or not or but it's very deliberately not centered exclusively on white experience white the white queer experience that's been really helpful for me there tends to be like perception of like when people think of queerness it's the like white queer experience which isn't inclusive of everybody's story and so it's important for me i think to interact with other people especially people that have different experiences to mine so i can better understand it's a great way for me to kind of step into my identity as Asian American because like until I started taking Asian American studies it's never it's almost like been at odds with my queerness instead of instead of now I'm coming to see it as a unified part of my identity and then I also miss art nights that we did back when everything was in person those were really nice. I miss the kitchen too, because I'm I'm I, I love food and I love eating. <laughs> like I could like wax poetic poetic about like how great it is to like sit and eat a meal and connect with people, but also I just really love carbs. So <laughs> a few things that I want to go back to some of the things you said, um, especially the one of the first things was the language, you know, the language of pronouns and identification and everything, it's changed drastically in the last, I mean, certainly like even five years, but, you know, 20 years or so. Um, and, you know, there's things that everyone says on a daily basis, like, I mean, even in this podcast, a couple of times I've already dropped you guys, like I say that all the time. And it's like relearning to like drop things out of lexicon that you have drilled into your brain. But I think also one of the, in, in my experience, one of the first things that kind of helps you feel comfortable with yourself is learning the language of yourself and your personality. And you're absolutely right, Alex. A lot of times when you're learning from YouTube or Hollywood, it's very black and white and it's very, you know, it's, everybody's very pretty and everybody's very white and it's just, 
you look at it and you're like, that's not my experience. So is my experience wrong? And so I, one of the things that we're definitely actively trying to do in theater and myself in particular is open up the spaces and, you know, theater was written by white dudes for thousands and thousands of years. So those are the stories that they wrote and they gave themselves the best roles. And I could go on a rant for that for ever and ever. And my job, my uh, goal in life is to take all of the male roles from them and do them myself. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so one of the things, especially um, Silicon Valley Shakespeare, but a lot of the theaters in the company are really, or in the area are really trying to do is open these spaces up because I think we have always prided ourselves as a theater as being inclusive of everyone and we've always been you know anyone who didn't feel like they had a space please come and be in theater but we need to put our money where our mouth is essentially we can't keep telling these cis white stories and we can't keep having lgbtq actors play these straight white characters um so it it's really important for us to kind of open up that floor and open up those spaces and start telling those stories and, you know, whether it's retooling the classic like Romeo and Juliet, like what I want to do, or it's opening up these spaces for playwrights to create new things that are telling these stories because media is consumed by everyone. And um, I think that that's kind of the first part of spreading knowledge is having this media accessible and having it in the norm and making it not an other, making it a common core, a common struggle, a common whatever. Because um, yeah, before we started recording, I said, you know, I'm from a very small, small town in the South and it was a very straight white community and that's all you had and <laughs> aging myself, but I had AOL dial up for most of my childhood. And so, even those YouTube videos weren't really available. YouTube didn't exist. Um, and so it is It is great that now, not only do we have the internet, but we still have these like physical brick and mortar spaces because that's another challenge that we're like, I mean, you know, it's cool that we can do things over Zoom, but another thing that we have to realize is some of our, our LGBTQ family, they don't have internet access. And unfortunately this virtual world isn't available to them it's great that you know you all are doing everything you can whether it's in person or virtual so it's just awesome that there's more spaces and more options available for people than previously hitting on more of the harder topics I guess what are what are some of the particular challenges that you all face that you all feel that the LGBTQ youth face whether it's here in San Jose or whether it's elsewhere because one of the things that I've talked a lot about, because I'm not from California, is I feel that Californians, we sometimes get, especially Bay Area, we get in our bubble. It's a lot more liberal here than it is where I'm from. And so I think sometimes in the San Jose area or Bay Area, it's very easy to put those blinders on. And it's very easy to say, oh, you know, the, the rest of the world is, I mean, we definitely have work to do, but the rest of the world is as accepting as we are. And it's it's not true. Um, so what are some of the challenges that you all would like, you know, our listeners to know that the, the youth are facing these days? There's quite a few. Uh, however, I think with shelter in place and with the lack of an ability to freely see your support system, um, if you're a young person who doesn't have support at home or isn't out, one of the challenges is just being in an environment that is con consistently not supportive of your identity or um, 
outwardly accepts like who you are as a person. HIPAA says that, you know, your medical everything is supposed to be a secret, but your parents can still get billed for um, your mental health access through your insurance and thereby kind of discover that you are accessing a certain type of care that they might not be uh, in belief of. Um, and that can then um, create issues within a family dynamic. Um, we've also had instances in which, unfortunately, some parents have elected to keep the use on their insurance and not let them go off of it, even though that, that kid has been kicked out of the home. And that creates a barrier for the youth because although they seemingly then would be eligible for local Medi-Cal, they can't access it because everything shows that they're covered under some other plan that they can't get off of unless the parent writes a letter and releases them, but the parent won't do that. And it's been hard seeing that occur, seeing how um, sinister some parents can be, where they will like stop at nothing at finding whatever small detail they can hold on to, to kind of create more chaos in the life of, of, of a young person. Um, or, or their child. I think space has been an issue for some of our youth who um, are living in more cramped spaces with family, where perhaps the school and the youth space was an outlet to get out, have more freedom to roam, have access to friends, um, because housing costs are astronomical here. And we do like have youth who, who are living in very, very close quarters, you know, with their family and sometimes with other roommates and, um, and, and that uh, proximity to folks um, and not having your own space, I know has come up a few times with some of the kids. So yeah, it's, it's all over the place. Um, but I think uh, a big one is access to ed education for people who work with you. So Title IX being kind of a big mystery still to some educators. <laughs> And even some school administrators and, you know, going far as far back as even like one or two years ago, um, just having some of our kids let us know the, the hardships they were facing on their public school campus um, with accessing restroom that aligned with their uh, with their identity still. I mean, that's still happening. It's still happening locally. And um, and I think it's just a matter of having a main entity that can both educate but also enforce what is Title IX? What does this access look like? Because we can do those trainings and we have, but we can't do the enforcing. And the enforcing, the role of the enforcement is like, often I guess there's a Title IX coordinator for every district, but it, 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 it doesn't necessarily mean that that person um, is like an attorney. <laughs> And, and so it's like, there's, there's no, uh, there's no regulation in terms of like, there's no even playing field versus like, who can be a Title IX coordinator in one district and who can be it in another district. And the other thing is, I, I've never heard of a person who is like just the Title IX coordinator. They're often also something else or maybe three different things. That's what's coming to mind when you ask that question. Yeah, um, I agree with everything Erica just said. I think also like where we are in the Bay Area, the fact that overall we are more like accepting than other places can often actually hold people back from having their truths validated. Like for instance, I've lived in the Bay Area my entire life. Um, so I grew up there and 
at the same time as like I was fortunate enough to be able to like access all these resources, it was also at the same time I was being called slurs and basically like accessing like institutional transphobia and homophobia, my experiences pale in comparison to some of the things that I've heard from my peers. If that's the experience of us where we're in the Bay Area, which is supposed to be like held up as the progressive like standard for what like we should do, then like that shows just how much work we need to do. And I think we could sit here and list like so many issues that plague our community but really it all it all comes back to lack of especially for young people lack of compassion and lack of young people are not seen as able or smart enough or whatever to decide their own identities and to tell their own stories their agency is taken away from them at the same time the responsibility of advocating for their own rights is put on them for example for Um, non-binary youth, the expectation to educate and explain their identities is put on them, not even for just random strangers, but like medical professionals and teachers, adults who the burden is still put on this young person to always be the educator all the time. And I think it's a combination of queerness being seen as like unnatural and not normative and also coming into play our society's kind of I don't want to say distrust of young people but that young people are not seen as like full complex individuals which they are and they should be treated with as much respect as you would an adult that also means like holding young people to account when they make a mistake which is something that I feel like people have a hard time understanding that yes, young people like should not be expected to know everything. Really, no one should. But at the same time, there's like a certain level of behavior that it's not right to call somebody else a not nice name, whether that's like just a generic mean name or a slur. It's like basic stuff. And I think by excusing away that behavior as oh kids being kids we're setting a really awful example for what is okay and what is not so that's my whole hot take there absolutely it's like one of my least favorite phrases of all time is boys will be boys I want to throw things at people every single time they say that to me because I'm like, no, that's not acceptable. Thank you. <laughs> I think the Bay Area kind of going back to your point earlier, I think the Bay Area sometimes rests on its laurels of, oh, we're the most progressive out of the country, but yo, we got, we got work to do. Absolutely. This is going to be my shout out to every single ally, whether you're an ally of race, LGBTQ, whatever. It is not the job of the oppressed to educate you. Please do your research. Please do, uh, gosh, even just a Google search sometimes will answer your question. And I mean, like, don't trust every single Google thing because that's how you end up on QAnon or whatever the F. But like, read books. Granted, you know, some, like I said earlier in the podcast, like some of the lexicon has changed drastically in the last even year or so. But, you know, there is literature out there. There is history. You have to know the history of things. You have to know where things came from. You have to do your research because as an ally, just going to someone and asking you know, even basic questions, you 
are probably not the first person to ask them. They may have been asked that same question 10 times that day, and they may be just mentally burned out answering that question. So also if you're an ally and you ask someone a question and they give you kind of a curt response, it's, it's probably not personal. It's just, they're burned out and, um, just do a little research. You can always ask for clarification and whatever. I, I, I accept things a lot more. If you're like, I was reading this book and I had this question and I'm like, okay, great. Let's, let's start there. Yes, absolutely. Education is helpful, but it's also not the oppressed job to educate the oppressor. Speaking of education, um, are there any books or resources or anything that um, you all would point to, whether it's on your website or whether it's somewhere else? Um, and this could be resources for youth, or it could also be resources for parents, um, because that's the other half of this equation is the parental half and making sure that they get education as well. And so any call outs for resources that you all want to make? There's two that that just kind of popped into my head as soon as you said that. Um, so we do, the, the Youth Space does offer trainings. Um, they're free of charge. Um, we also have a parent support group. So we are a resource in and of ourselves. Um, and, and those questions that perhaps some allies sometimes have for uh, folks that they know can also just be redirected to us via email. You can contact us through our website. One of the resources that I've been offering up when I'm doing uh, Zoom presentations for youth at school who are either middle schoolers or high schoolers, I understand that sometimes there's self-process that happens with gender first. Uh, and um, and there may be questions that one doesn't yet feel comfortable asking or resources that one feels comfortable like dipping their toes into. And so one of the things that I've been doing um, is just letting the youth know that if they're interested in our support groups, like say for um, our trans, trans support group, but they're, they don't feel like they're ready, but they still are kind of questioning and they wanna do like some solo work, um, I've been offering to just get them a copy of the gender workbook. The author's name escapes my mind, but it like you could just Google it, gender workbook. I think it was published 2016, um, and it's specifically for teens and for youth. Um, and so it's, it's a series of um, worksheets and exercises that you can do on your own. And that can kind of give you a little bit of a better idea of like where you stand on the spectrum um, of gender. And so that's, that's, that's a really great resource. I think that um, even a parent can do just to kind of figure out like what is the process or what is the struggle of a young person or my child who may be like asking these questions without necessarily like having to nitpick that person's brain and then kind of create this like skewed communication line between them and, and, and the younger one. Um, another thing um, that I think given like we're in a pandemic and given that, you know, um, we, we could use a lot more happiness is the show that we briefly talked about earlier, We're Here on HBO. That really speaks to many different kind of parts of being human, I think, because it is, it is about drag, it is about performance, it is about being empowered, and it is about looking at spaces and places specifically that tend to be a little bit more close-knit, more conservative, but also discovering that the LGBTQ community is everywhere. Like we're not just in San Jose, although we might be very visibly like queer and trans folks in the Bay Area because of San Francisco and the history of migration of this community here, um, we exist all over the place. And, and, and therein is like, is the catcher, right? Like we don't become queer because we access media. We are queer because we are who we are. 
and we are trans because we are who we are, not because we watch YouTube videos. We do that to find community and to find solidarity, but not because it teaches us to be this way. So yeah, I would say those two those two resources are, are, are at the forefront for me right now. I forgot to shout out the parent groups because that was so nice uh, and helpful for me, especially in my relationship with my mom. When I first came out as Uh, to her as trans. My mom is the type of person that I guess likes to do her research. I got her all these pamphlets that I had gotten at Pride about like, oh, your child is trans. What do you do? I I even checked out this giant book from the library. I'm talking giant. Like it was this thick. It was just like basically like a a trans encyclopedia. And so she's reading through it and um, she gets to like the medical procedures thing. And I think for a parent, like for your first exposure to be to like trans issues is like talking about like surgery. I think she was like a little bit like put off by that. Um, She's like, oh my God. And I had like expressed to her like that I wanted to get um, top surgery sometime in the future. And she was like, oh my God, like, are you ready for that? What if you regret it? There's no turning back, blah, blah, blah. She had all these questions. And at that point, I was not ready to educate her. And I had just like had that realization like, oh, I'm not cisgender. So I wasn't even really sure of like confident of myself. So I, I, I dragged her to the parent group. I remember Frank, who's one of the staff, the youth space, talked to her and all her like gigantic long list of questions. She got to ask a, 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 a human and he like talked and he, I think hearing it like from some, like an, a, a trans person who was like, who was like out as trans and living like a quote-unquote successful life not that success can really be measured by that arbitrary standard but I think also because my mom had seen the bullying that I had gotten for being not for my gender expression not matching the uh, sex I was assigned at birth and I think she had this conception that to be trans was to be always a victim of violence. There is a a level of truth in that our communities, trans communities face disproportionately high rates of violence. I always come back to this. I think it's interesting that um, her approach for me being trans was not, oh, my child is part of this minority group. And so I'm going to change society in order to make my child feel more uh, accepted. It was, her response was, I'm going to protect my child by not letting them express their self. I don't hold my mom, like I don't hold any bad feelings towards her for that. She did what she thought was the best for me. I'm sure that I'm not the only one who's had that experience. I think I, this idea is important of like LGBTQ plus people should not be accepted or tolerated, but they should be embraced. They should be not accept, not led into the circle, but at the center of it. True liberation for us does not mean being accepted into spaces that are still wrought with institutional homophobia and transphobia. It means building our own spaces and centering our own stories and our own voices, not 
trying to shout them out into spaces that don't want to hear them. Um, although that is important as well, I think. If you really want to build a a space where queer youth get what they need, you have to you have to center queer youth in the entire process of building that space. Awesome. We're going to wrap up here. Um, but Erica, if you could just give us, you know, your um, website name and if you guys, um, if y'all accept donations and everything like that, if there's any sort of spiel that you want to direct our listeners to so that they know where to find you once they're done listening to this episode. Yeah, most definitely. <clears throat> so our website is www.youthspace.org. We do accept donations. There is um, a link in our homepage. Uh, to donations. There's also a link there in case somebody is interested in accessing more information and submitting a referral for our counseling services. And there's also um, a calendar date of events um, that's listed for the month that we are currently living in. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter to get uh, a newsletter sent to your email that will reflect the special events or events outside of the recurring groups that occur. And I would say uh, keep an eye out because we have a little bit of a shuffle coming in with the uh, events calendar. Uh, we are um, planning on starting kind of a, a drop-in work or homework group over Zoom so that folks can kind of get that feel where they're working together on their own kind of work without like kind of like what I imagine the feeling is that you get when you go to the library to just be quiet and do work. So piloting that to see if that works. We're also piloting um, a one-shot RPG group to see how that goes. Um, we're keeping on with Minecraft that Alex uh, helps us with. And um, we are, yeah, forever exploring new ways to connect and, and keep engaged and um, keep our keeping our youth um, kind of the forefront and aware of what their resources are. Yeah, which this year has looked completely different to every other year. But again, um, hopefully moving forward when everything goes back to the way it used to be, um, we will retain some of this access for youth who can't physically come into our space because those youth also exist. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much, Alex and Erica, for uh, joining us today on the podcast. It's been great having you all. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been great having you invite us to be here. And now, because no episode is complete without one, without further ado, I'll hand it off to our resident dramaturge, Dal Picado, for this episode's Bard Babble. As Hamlet says in Act 2, Scene 2, words, words, words. This episode's Bard Babble is embrace. The word embrace made its first appearance in the mid 14th century. It comes from the old French embrasier, meaning to clasp in the arms. And even farther back, it comes from the Latin brachium, meaning arm. The verb form in this word existed long before Shakespeare embraced it, but he was the first to use this word as a noun, as in Romeo and Juliet, Act 5. Eyes look your last, arms take your last embrace, and lips, O oh you, the doors of breath, seal with a righteous kiss a dateless bargain to engrossing death. Shakespeare invented over 400 words. This has been one of them. Thank you, doll. Coming up at SVS, join us for a live performance over Zoom Valentine's Day weekend as SVS partners with South Bay Musical Theater to bring you the classic romance Pride and Prejudice. To reserve your free tickets, visit www.svshakespeare.org. 
Tune in to ShakesPod on February 20th as we continue our Love is Love theme, getting the inside scoop from the local artists on their experience and thoughts on LGBTQ plus representation on the stage. From SVS to all of our wonderful listeners, thank you for joining us on this episode of ShakesPod.